Father in heaven, of all things for us to be gathered about, it is your Son. And regardless of what life throws at us, regardless of what foolish decisions we make, regardless of what mistakes we find ourselves with regrettable consequences, or regardless if we feel like the life's going great, existence really is about your Son. It's always been about Him. And so, Father, in this time, please, bless to our hearts and minds all that we see and hear and think about, that You would give us wisdom, that You would break our hearts, to help us see our lives from an eternal perspective as You see them. It's amazing how presence can easily crowd out the gift. And Lord, how we need the gift. So Father, please bless this time. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. If a church is going to be about anything, it needs to be about truth. Period. If you came here, I hope you came to hear truth. If you go to another church, I hope you hear truth. But the grand line in the sand that God has drawn is that His Word is truth, nothing else is true. Now sometimes that's hard for people, especially if you're skeptical, to understand that, or even to grasp that, or even to think that that's an audacious claim. We do believe that there is one true God. We believe that He's the Creator of all things. We believe that everything else was created by Him. And depending on what they wanted to do with the choices that were placed in front of Him, them, whether chose evil or chose good, and that is the lot that they've chosen in life. But I would hope that Grace Bible Church would always be known, regardless of how difficult something may seem, to stick to the truth of God's Word. And one of the most incredible things that you find is that, well, how do you explain miracles? Do miracles really happen? Do miracles really take place? And this is why when we address something with, like the virgin birth, I think it's important for us to give reasons as to why the virgin birth is true. Why this really happened in this way. Why it couldn't have happened in any other way or the consequences of it would have been detrimental to humanity as a whole. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is, take your Bible please. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We'll get to the insert you have in your bulletin a little bit. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, and we want to start with getting the announcement of the fact that there would be not just a birth, and not just a miraculous birth, but of all things a virgin birth. In Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee, called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Make sure that you keep that in your mind. That's important. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. 
Forgive me, I'm all jumbled here. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, here it is. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. A couple things real quick. She found favor with God. Or God was looking favorably, or let's say it this way, God was looking graciously upon her. It may not have been anything about personal merit that was involved with her. It may have been the fact that she had completely submitted and volunteered her life for whatever God would have for it. And that type of reaching out in obedience to God was something that God desired to bless with something that is grand beyond compare. The name Jesus is actually Yeshua. So if you've ever heard Yeshua, you hear somebody talk like that, or they got some, you know what it sounds like in their mouth, Hebrew, some gutturals going on. Yeshua. And it means Yahweh, the almighty creator God, is salvation. So Jesus' very name is depictive of what exactly he seeks to accomplish. And Mary did not come up with it. Joseph did not come up with it. Gabriel let Mary know what this child's name was before the child was conceived. Notice it says here, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Now real quick, if you're somebody who likes to mark in your Bible, I want you to notice this real quick. This part right here, this is all first coming. All of this is second. Christ has promised to come again. All of this is true. I think that's important to say. Will is still future there. All of this is true. But when it really came down to how do people generally deal with a person like Jesus, of which you check him out in history, regardless if you find it to be in the Bible, maybe you don't trust the Bible as historical literature, I encourage you to check the Bible out more because it very much is verified historical literature. We have more manuscripts of the New Testament than we have of any other ancient document around. But also if you deal with somebody like historians at the time who chronicled about Jesus, and you find that all of their stories from varied approaches, not inspired by the Holy Spirit, match up perfectly. So Jesus has a lot of clout in his direction as to why he should believe and who he is and the quality of his person. When we look at something like this and we see that he is the son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him a throne of his father, David. The response that humanity has largely had to a sinless, perfect, and loving person is to put them to death. Recognize this. And that is because of the sin that is so deeply rooted within every one of us. It is so much easier to deal with something harshly and violently than it is to deal with something lovingly, patiently, and compassionately. And what we find is, is those are the ways that God exactly desires to deal with us when our response is always volatile in nature. So when we deal with this idea of a virgin birth, there are major consequences and actually problems that arise. If you're going to come to the Scriptures and think about, was he really born of a virgin? you got to be kidding me. 
Nobody else was. Aha! That's what I would say. Aha! Anybody? No? How's the soup? Nobody knows that one? Soup's good. Where's the spoon? Aha! Nobody? Okay, never mind. You all think I'm a pagan now because I know that. Here we go. Here's problem number one. For God's word to be true, every prophecy in it has to be fulfilled. The Bible actually makes the claim that this is everything that God would ever have us to know, and he himself has inspired or breathed into everything that it has to say. Now, I don't know about you, but that automatically puts the stakes at astronomical levels. It's really difficult for us to set a bar that we live up to ourselves. Sometimes we like to, you, who in here is a one-upper? Anybody? Oh yeah, well, I can tell some of you wives are kind of like this, looking over. It's okay, yeah, you guys are like, did she do that to me? You ever met the one-upper guy? Whatever you did, I did it better, I did it stronger, I did it faster, I did it higher, I did it crazier, and I came out unscathed. You know they're full of it. You do. But when you have something like God who wants to say, this is my word, all of it is true. It's a large invitation for you to come and know me and know all about me and know all about what's going to happen. But not only that, I'm not just going to tell you what has happened. I'm going to tell you what is happening right now in our world. And I'm going to tell you what will happen to AT without ever being proved wrong. Those are high stakes. So one problem that we have is, for the Bible to be true, every prophecy's got to come true. Yes? Yeah, absolutely. If he's going to claim it, he better back it up. I always like the people who talk a big game and then they can't back it up, right? Don't let your mouth write a check that you can't cash. That's always a fun time. Those guys are my favorite. Genesis 3. Turn with me to Genesis 3, please. First book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, mosey up next to somebody next to you that does. Maybe you're not that fast of a flipper. That's okay. We still love you. Genesis 3.15. God has given a command in the Garden of Eden not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so just like anybody who's told you can't do that, the first thing they want to do is do it. That's what we all do. Right? Don't think of a pink elephant? You're welcome. Okay, so see how that works. Look in verse 15. God, dealing with the fact that they have disobeyed him, is now disciplining them. And he makes an incredibly interesting statement to Satan. Here's what he says, chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's strife, there's a barrier. There's a butting of heads now that's going to happen here. Well, watch this, because this is anatomically strange. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, the seed of the woman, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is what it's known as the Proto-Eongelium. And what this is, is it's Latin for first gospel. It's the first time that the idea that God has put forward in history 
of which he is going to bring in a Savior that's going to rectify this problem that's now on the scene. And what's interesting about this is he brings up something incredibly strange. Does everybody see where it says there's going to be enmity? Yes. Your seed, her seed. Talk to me. What's the problem there? We know? Ah. It sounds kind of silly when we say that loud, but let's be honest. Women don't have seeds, right? If you're a woman here today, raise your hand if you got a seed. Exactly. Right? In fact, we just know by basic health class the idea of how all the plumbing in that works. Yes. The seed does not come from the woman. Why is it she's said to have seed? Here's what's interesting about this. The Greek version of the Old Testament, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, but when it was translated into Greek, may be the earliest attested interpretation of seed as an individual. It translates the Hebrew word for seed with the Greek sperma. We all know where that comes from in the English language. It's a neuter noun. It's neutral. It's not male. It's not female. It's just neutral. Okay? The expected antecedent pronoun, the prior pronoun leading up to that to help you understand how it should go, is it, which is neuter. It's not a male or female. It's an it. Okay? It will crush your head, but... The Greek has he, which is masculine, which suggests that the translators interpreted seed as an individual. See, here's what's interesting. When they decided they were going to translate the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language, they understood something about this passage. It's the fact that the woman would have a seed, but the seed would not come from a man. This actually depicts the virgin birth in the third chapter of the Bible. God told us how he was going to do it very early on. And so what he tells us is, yeah, she's going to have a seed. Women don't normally have a seed, but guess what? I'm going to handle this situation differently. Now, the question is, is why? Because when you've got an opponent that cares nothing more, as Satan does, than killing you, you have got to be more powerful than that. And so this is a divinely wrought, divinely inspired bringing forth of how God would eventually take care of this problem. He is setting up his tactical strategy to deal with it. Not only that, but in Isaiah 7.14, this one is common for Christmas. If you want to turn there, you can. Isaiah 7.14, one of the greatest prophecies is given forward about the fact that there would be the birth of not just a Savior, but it would be a virgin birth. Notice, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A sign is something that God has supernaturally given into history that is completely strange from everything we understand is natural, but is very much as real. Just because something is supernatural doesn't mean it's not real. Supernatural is just the other side of what is natural. One of our problems is, as we say, if I can't see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, or touch it, it doesn't exist. And that becomes very difficult when you try to express the love that you have for somebody in your heart for someone else. Because if you're having to motivate that in the way that you touch somebody or say words to them, it's a manifestation of what's already a reality in you. So recognize this. Just because it's unseen doesn't mean that it's not real. Notice it says here, it will be a sign. Now this is some 700 years before this would ever happen. Behold, a virgin will be with child 
and bear a son, and she will call his name God with us. Now, this is a major claim. Because not only we're going to find that we don't need a male figure in order to contribute seed in order to have this virgin birth, that the fact is when the virgin birth comes, and it is very much going to be a man, it's not going to be just a man, it's going to be God himself. These are high stakes. So the birth of Jesus in a virgin way at least fulfills these two prophecies in order to lead to the building blocks of the credibility of the Bible. A virgin birth fulfills both of these. Problem number two, sexual union creates a person, yes? Okay, but Jesus is already a person as seen in the Old Testament. So if you have a male involved in this, you're actually creating a person upon a person and you cannot do that. Now, let's define personhood real quick. You'll remember this from a few weeks ago. If you go church here, we dealt with the idea of the Trinity. Personhood consists of intellect, volition, and emotion. For human beings, we call this the soul, mind, will, and emotions. Each person of the Trinity can think, choose, and feel. However, they never think, choose, and feel in some way that is going to be contradictory in any sense with one another. But we would say that this room is filled with persons. Why would we say that? Because every one of you have the ability to think, to choose, and to feel about what you have in situations around you, what you believe to be true. If you would, turn back to the second book, of the Bible, Exodus. By the way, we like the Bible here. I want to show you this. And I've already underlined these for you. This is the interchange between Moses and when he comes in contact with God on a mountain. It says here, the angel of the Lord. Everybody see that? The angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. Everybody see that that's underlined. Pay attention, okay? And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up. When Yahweh, when the Lord, saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. Who was in the midst of the bush? God. And who? And guess what? Same people. Now here's the problem. This right here messes us up. Angel. Angel. We think naked Charmin babies, right? We usually think those that have these big massive falcon wings or something like that. They don't look anything like that. The Bible never depicts an angel that looks anything like that stuff, okay? But what the word actually means is messenger. The messenger of the Lord. So you can very well go through your entire Bible and every time you see the word angel, translate it messenger. You won't destroy anything. The reason why they translate it angel is because they understand that it's a supernatural being, not a natural being that's spoken here. So notice what you have. In fact, I would say that every time, if you just do your homework on this, every time you see the phrase angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is always pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Every time. How do we know that? Because just right here, They've ascribed him to be God. The angel of the Lord is God. Plainly says it. Notice how it moves on. 
Verse 5, then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, he said also, look what he said. Angel of the Lord God, same person. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at. Think the scriptures are trying to communicate something to us through repetition? How about this? This is a good one. Turn to Psalms. Psalms is one of those books that if you just have your Bible in the middle, put your thumbs in the middle of it, and plop it open, you usually end up there. It's okay. It's a good place. Psalm chapter 2. This is what's considered a messianic psalm. In other words, it's a, it's a psalm that deals specifically with the fact of a Messiah. Psalm chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. says, and what's interesting is, is this is also prophetic. Think about where our world is today. Watch this. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh, the Creator, and against His anointed. Does everybody notice that these are put on the same plane together? They are both the object of scorn as far as the world is concerned. Why? Because the world cares nothing except to lie, kill, hurt, destroy. That's what the world is about. The reason is, is because they've learned it from Satan. It says here, here's what they're saying. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want anything to do with God restraining us anymore. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Why? Because that's the proper response to something like this. It says, the Lord scoffs at them. Now this is interesting because this word right here is Adonai. And it means the master. The master scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Notice present tense. In the Old Testament, Jesus is the son of God. Today I have begotten you. This word, don't make it think, don't let your mind think it means birth. In the Bible it doesn't. It means brought you forth. And it's the idea of we've had this position reserved for you and now it's time to ascend you to this position. What is that position? The rightful king of all existence. So God's son is now put into the position of rightful king of all existence. He says, ask of me. And I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. This is when it all comes down the pipe and when the end of the world is ready to hit, God receives all things because no one else could deal with it well. Everyone had to sin to get what they wanted to get. Last reference, you don't have to turn there. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego cast into the furnace of fire if you're familiar with that story in the book of Daniel. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. They only threw in three. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And that's the best way that a pagan mind in Babylon could put it because they worship many gods, not just one god. So here you have repeatedly Old Testament verification of the fact that Jesus is a person who could think, feel, act, 
in the Old Testament, present before this idea of the virgin birth ever came about. So the virgin birth is actually a perfect solution for bringing forth a pre-existing person. Why? Because if you don't have the male seed, you're not creating another person. Instead, you're taking a person who already exists and you're giving them a body to inhabit like yours and like mine. Problem number three. Jeconiah. Anybody expecting? Anybody? Kim. Jeconiah. Just saying. Actually, you don't want to do that. After you see this, you're like, why would he suggest that? You don't want to do that. I'm an idiot. Forget it. Okay. Jeconiah's sin disqualified his line from holding the Davidic throne, yet Jesus is his descendant. You might say, what in the world does that mean? I'm going to have you follow me on this one, and you'll get out our papers, out of our bulletins. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes this promise to David. David is a man after God's own heart. And because of his faithfulness, God rewards him with a calling that no one else has. I'm going to give you descendants in such a way as to where the very Savior of the world is going to come through your heritage, your line. And so while there's a lot around this, and you could look at it later in chapter 7, I'll give you this. Your house, your kingdom shall endure before me forever, forever killing me, Smalls, right? Your throne shall be established forever. Again, high stakes. It's a pretty big deal. Because what this does is this actually claims that Jesus is going to be the ruler of the world. He's not just going to be the ruler of Israel. He's not just going to be that somebody comes along, he's kind of a smart carpenter guy, kind of knew some things, had guys chase him around, and all of a sudden he was killed unjustly. It actually claims that he's a king waiting to take possession of his kingdom. In Psalm 89, speaking of this same promise, he says his descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me, and it shall be established forever like the moon. And the witness of the sky is faithful. What is the witness of the sky? The moon and the sun. As we see them day and night, day and night, over and over, this promise will come true. Or to put it another way, God says such promises in this type of strong language, and sometimes we use this today. I'll be damned if this doesn't take place. God is putting his very reputation. He's putting his very name. He's putting his very personhood on the line. If it doesn't happen, then there, you've got every reason not to believe in God. But if it does happen, then you better be ready to bow the knee because everything I ever told you was true. Jeremiah chapter 22, all of this falls apart. This man, Coniah, is despised. Now, Coniah is Jeconiah. Whoa, go back here, people. This thing is so cantankerous. It's Jeconiah, or he's also known as a guy, Jehoachin. Kim, pick any of those you want. This is the people responding to God's decision to remove him from the throne and judge him harshly. Why? Because all Jeconiah wanted to do was wickedness. God constantly tried to work with him, set up even people before him of what it was to live righteously, to do a good job. If he just does this, I'll bless him. It ain't a big deal. Come on, just just listen. Just listen to what God has to say. Jeconiah's like, nope, ain't going to do it. So because of that, there's all kinds of repercussions that come. 
So they're asking the question, is this man, Jeconiah, a despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out? It's interesting because this is the idea of like throwing a javelin. Why is he thrown out? Get him out of here kind of thing. He's been evicted and cast into a land that they had not known. The response is, and there probably actually be this. Oh, land, 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 hear the word of Yahweh. Hear the word of the Lord. Here it is. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. Now, here's the problem. In the Bible, it's listed that Jeconiah had seven sons. None of them sat on the throne. Now, Jeconiah is of the line of David. Notice what it says. Write this man down as childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David. No, none, nada, uh-uh, can't happen. No. Everybody clear? It's not going to happen. Now here's the problem. God has made a promise that there will always be a descendant of David that will sit on this throne. Yet this guy sinned in such a way as where God said, no more, not your line. The problem is, is that Jeconiah's line is also the line of David, which will also bring about Jesus. Uh-oh. Bible's in the balance. Notice, you will not rule again in Judah. How do we deal with this? Everybody pull out this little paper. That's the reason why I wanted to put it in your hands. We could flip back and forth. You'll probably get shell-shocked from that. We don't want to do that. I want to show you some things. Everybody see this? This is a genealogy. And let's be honest, genealogies are not prime devotional material. We're not exactly spending a ton of time going, this person begot this person begot this person, and we walk away feeling brand new for the day. It usually doesn't happen. But here's some things that I definitely want to show you, that the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, he's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. So son of Abraham, having the promise given to the Jews, land, seed, blessing. But he's also a descendant of David, which means this promise of being king is his. Period. Now you walk down through here and you see something very interesting. Number one, this entire genealogy describes the legal royal line. If you ever wanted to be questioning credibility of this, this is the document that you would bring into the court. And because it's so plain and it's so true, you'd have to rule either in favor or against it, depending on the information that it gave, because it's outlining family tree. Notice in verses 6 through 11, these are all kings. Notice in verse 6, you have Jesse was the father of David, the king. And that's when that kingdom part starts, when he takes that on. You move all the way down to 11, Josiah, he was a righteous king, became the father of Jeconiah, an incredibly wicked king, and his brothers and the time of the, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So while he was king, Babylon came in, sacked the place, removed everybody out of it. It was kind of his wickedness that was the icing on the cake. Notice that it starts with the idea, the fact that David's son, which comes from this, verse 5, uh, excuse me, in verse 7, is Solomon. Solomon is the one who is the next king on deck. Notice also that when Jeconiah shows up, that means that verses 12 through 16 are not kings. Are they part of this legal royal line? Yes, but because of the scathing curse that God gave upon his line because of his wickedness, descendants can no longer be kings. Notice that Joseph's father at the bottom, verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Notice at the end of verse 16, Jesus was born who was called the Messiah. He alone is the rightful king. 
Now you take that and you flip it over to the other side. Now notice you have a genealogy, but here's what's odd about this genealogy is instead of listing it from earliest to latest, it's listing it from the latest back to the earliest. And so if you notice here, this is actually going to be the Jewish bloodline of the genealogy. In other words, if one deals with legal and royal, this one is actually going to follow blood. That's important because of what we're going to see. Notice in verse 31 that David's son is listed as Nathan. Everybody see that? Son of Nathan, son of David. They're going backwards there. After that, verse 32, son of Jesse. Jesse was David's son. David, or uh, Sorry, David was Jesse's son. Nathan is David's son. Notice it's not Solomon because it's not the royal line. Notice here that Joseph's father is listed as Eli. Up in verse 23, the end of it. The son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Eli is actually, anybody want to guess? Mary's father. So here's what you have. You have the virgin birth allows for God to judge evil while still keeping his promise, his covenant to David. Why is that? Because even though these kings from Jeconiah were disqualified from this, God can still judge evil. He has the ability to make an unconditional promise to somebody and fulfill it, and yet not allow us to run amok. You ever done that with your kids? Yeah, we're going to go do that today. Are you sure? Yes, I promise we will go do that. Rookie mistake, parents. Don't ever do it. Why? Because then all of a sudden the I'm going to act a fool button comes on. And next thing you know, oh, but you said we'd go. But you promised we'd go. And what are you doing? I promised we'd go. How do you discipline in the midst of the fact that you still promise that they're going to do this, regardless of how bad they act in this situation? There's just no consequences in the game. God has the ability to still bring about the consequences perfectly and justly and still maintain his promise. How does he do that? Because the virgin birth was not the passing of this royal legal line into Jesus. Why? Because Joseph, who if the king line would have went on, would have been ruling at that time, had no part in this. Yet he still falls in the line because he's rightfully the king. So how does it still happen? Because the blood still came from King David through Mary, which produced a human person. The virgin birth comes out on top again. Problem number four. And this is my last one, don't worry. Every person born has a sin nature. So wouldn't this affect Jesus as well? Here's how this happened. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you will die. Spiritually first. Physically. If you're here visiting today and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know some things. Number one, we love you. We're really glad that you're here. Number two, and even greater than that, God loves you more than he could ever possibly express to your knowledge to be able to understand. And we see this by the fact that he gave his son on the cross so that you could go to heaven and be with him forever. He died for all of your wrongdoing that previously separated you from him. But recognize this, if you don't know Jesus as your savior, you may be physically alive right now, but you are spiritually dead. You don't have the forgiveness of sins because you haven't believed in Christ for it. He's the one who secured it for you by his death. This is where it all comes from. Romans 5.12 tells us that because Adam sinned, that sin spreads to all people. Why? Dads, way to go. We're the sin spreaders. When we pass that seed in order to create a brand new person, we spread the sin. 
That's us, and that's on us. Romans chapter 3, none are righteous, not one person. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. We've all become useless. Some of you are here because your moms invited you. Thanks, moms. That's good stuff. I'm glad you're here. But I also want you to know the truth about it. Our situation is a helpless and hopeless one. And so when we think about, let's just get on with Christmas and presents because I know I'm getting whatever, that's cool, but recognize this. You will still be spiritually dead on the other side of opening that present. What do we have here? Back to our passage in Luke 1. Turn with me, please, because I want you to see this. Luke chapter 1. We pick back up with where we left off. Questions abound about this passage. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, because the announcement's given, you're going to have a son. Oh, you've never been with anybody, you're going to have a son. She asked a really good question. How can this be? Mary's not a fool. She knows how this works. And she knows she hasn't entered into that realm yet. So how is this actually going to play out that something miraculous like this is going to take place? I mean, it's not every day that you have a messenger from God standing right in your face telling you these incredible things. The angel answered and said to her, watch this. Here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Notice the presence of the Spirit. The power of the Most High, there's the Father, will overshadow you. The idea is to cast shade upon somebody or to draw them in in order to envelop them, to cover them from harm. It's almost like the idea if you wrap, you know, your, your house is on fire, you wrap a, a flame retardant blanket around you and you ran for the door to get out. It's the idea that because you were enveloped in that type of situation, you would have safe passage. Well, the Father has come in and He has wrapped His arms around her to hold her in this time. And notice what it says, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, for that reason, one, two, three, the holy child. No sin. Will be called the Son of God. Why? Because He's as perfect as God is. In fact, let me say this, the only type of perfection in life that God accepts is a perfection that is part and parcel of His own. Anything, good thoughts we have, good vibes that we're sending out, any sort of works we think we're doing, caring for the homeless, regardless of what it might be. Somebody needs to jump up and down back there because your light went off. Sorry, Holmans. There you go, it's motion. Yeah, act charismatic, you're good. There you go, praise the Lord. Awesome. Anything that you would ever try to bring to the table on this is absolutely disqualified before God. Why? Because it's not perfect. And so what God does in wanting to provide a perfect sacrifice so that we can all be with Him should we choose to do so, what we find is He's got to start this whole process on earth perfect in order for it to end perfectly. And He does this by getting us guys out of the way. Letting His Holy Spirit do the work so that the work will be a perfect work that is done. The virgin birth avoids the transference 
of the sin nature. Now here's what I'm going to ask you to do is look at one more little thing. If you scoot down in your Bible, verse 36 explains what was going on in another part of this. But look at verse 37. Here's, here's the declaration. For nothing will be impossible. Nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. Not one thing will be impossible with God. You say, I just can't buy a virgin birth. Prove it wrong. Tell me why. Tell me that if there was nothing and God all of a sudden spoke and spoke matter into existence and began to intelligently craft it together in order to begin the world and create life on this earth out of nothing, then how is a virgin birth harder for him to accomplish? Recognize that when God is involved, there is nothing that we cannot do. There's nothing that cannot happen. Why? Because it's always Him doing the perfect work. We just get to participate in it. We just get to see it. We just get to be part of it. We just get to enjoy it. And here's one thing I know. We definitely get to reap the benefits of it. Because in order to have an acceptable standing before God, there had to be some perfection somewhere. And because Jesus was perfect from the beginning, He didn't just have to die for one or two people's sins. He died for every sin of every person that would ever live at any time in history. Period. If there is something that's keeping you from receiving the free gift of eternal life and forgiveness of your sins, you really have to ask your question why that's such a bad deal to take advantage of. If it's hard-heartedness, or hard-headedness, then that's okay. But don't cast some sort of blame and shadow upon God that's not there. Don't say, well, it can't be true. I've just given you four reasons why it is true. Why it has to be true. How it can't not be true. In fact, everything that we understand about morality and being is based on somebody who's a divine law giver. And so if that's the case, where did it come from? Our ethics? Has anybody checked to see how our ethics are doing today apart from God? I just want to make sure it's paving a pretty clear picture. You want to talk about a social experiment, good grief. Like somebody's lunch went bad. It's terrible. Only God is good. And only God can provide a salvation because we can't earn it. So recognize this today. Regardless of what you do, regardless of what you think of, understand this. God loves us so much that He wanted to do a perfect work, and He did. Whether you accept that, whether you reject that, that ball's in your court. But recognize at least, here's what God has done for me. So that I don't ever have to be separated from Him forever. You pray with me, please. God, I thank You for Your goodness. And I thank You for Your grace. I thank You for Your mercy. Thank you that you're clear. God, of everything that we would ever think differently of your character, you've set us straight in the word. You've given us clear guidance. And you've never been wrong. It's never a situation of boasting or gloating with you. But it's always a situation where you desire for every single person to come to know you so that they will be saved. So Father, today everyone's heart has to make some sort of decision.
We cannot be neutral on the person of Jesus. The Bible claims that He's virgin born. The Bible claims that He existed before He was born. The Bible claims that He is a coming King. The Bible claims that He died for sins. These are high stakes. And I'm so thankful, God, that You lovingly meet each one of them without any reservation, without any trepidation. So Lord, please incite our hearts and minds to be hungry for these things and to not be resistant of how You're able to break the heart. It is in Christ's name. Amen.